Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we explore topics in Western history, politics, philosophy, literature, and current events with a laser focus on seeking the truth and an adventurous disregard for ideological and academic fashions. I'm Matt Burgess, an assistant professor of environmental studies and faculty fellow of the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. My guest today is Alex Trembath. Alex is the deputy director of the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank focused on technological solutions to environmental problems. Our conversation explores climate change, the eco-modernist movement and its similarities and differences with conventional environmentalism, as well as the science and politics of nuclear energy. Alex Trembath, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Matt, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on because I consider you to be one of the thought leaders in what people call the eco-modernist movement. So can you tell me what is an eco-modernist and how did you come to identify yourself as one? Absolutely. So eco-modernism is a school of environmental philosophy, politics, and sort of policy that we basically incubated at the Breakthrough Institute, where I'm deputy director and I've worked for the last decade or so. Breakthrough was founded around 2008 to offer a sort of more techno-optimistic and sort of broadly optimistic environmental philosophy and politics, in contrast to the sort of limits and regulations-focused environmental politics that was transcendent at the time through the sort of cultural works of things like An Inconvenient Truth and through the sort of policy apparatuses of things like the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill. So that was sort of how Breakthrough got started, offering an alternative to the sort of limits and regulations-focused environmentalism. Our alternative was investments in economic opportunity and technological innovation to make clean energy cheap, as, as we said it. As our work sort of grew in scope and scale from there, we focused more on other global environmental problems, including climate change. But in addition to that, global biodiversity loss and land use change. We started paying close attention to food and agriculture systems and the promise of technologies outside the sort of electric grid and outside the the energy system, technologies and systems like high productivity agriculture to, as we put it, grow more food on less land and spare more room for wild nature. In addition to all of the sort of discrete technology problems that we saw and are, are working to address and solve our research and advocacy, We, I think, attracted a particular kind of environmental thinker and sort of pragmatic environmentalist. And that sort of community sort of cohered into what we now call the eco-modernist movement or the eco-modernist school of thought, as we put it, which, you know, agrees with conventional environmentalism on sort of really one major facet, which is that we have an ethic of care for non-human nature, for species and ecosystems that are outside of the human species and even outside our material interests. But we differ from conventional environmentalism in a number of ways that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, thank you for that summary. That was a a good summary. So to dig in a little bit on what you might call the alternate form of environmentalism that eco-modernism, as you put it, I think, arose in response to, you mentioned an ethic of care. Would you agree with the following characterization that the idea that human resource consumption ultimately underpins the scale of our society and that resource consumption in some ways unavoidably comes into conflict with care for non-human nature. Do you see that as being a main point of tension between eco-modernism and the form of environmentalism that you would say preceded it? 
I would say that that is a more a point of agreement, actually, between eco-modernists and sort of classic environmentalists. I think the divergence occurs in in sort of following that finding through to its implication. So everyone agrees that sort of human existence and, and human consumption and exploitation of natural resources, whether it's land to grow our food or whether it's materials, copper uh, and iron to build our industrial society, everyone agrees that these have impacts. The I think the the differences between us and our sort of environmentalist ideological opponents is what to do about that and, and to sort of how to think about the human nature technology interface. You know, for us, that relationship, the, the relationship between our activity and consumption and impacts on the natural world means that we want to be as productive and really sort of resource efficient as possible. We want to drive productivity improvements. We want to drive dematerialization. We want to drive decarbonization. And while they might not always sort of admit it, I think the the sort of underpinning of sort of classical environmentalist metaphysics is that we can't really decouple our well-being from impacts on non-human nature. What we need to do is restrain ourselves. What we need to do is reduce our consumption and reduce our activity. We need to degrow our economies to some degree. And again, these are not always sort of explicit goals of the sort of institutional environmentalist policy world or, or even the research. But I do think that that is a sort of fundamental metaphysical foundation to classical environmentalist thinking that we exist partially to disrupt. Would you characterize then the difference of opinion that you just described as being one of values or one of facts? So the way to think about it as a disagreement on facts would be, on the one hand, people are saying it's possible to decouple our standard of living from our environmental impact, and so we should do everything we can to do that, versus people, on the other hand, saying it's not possible to do that, and so we should prepare ourselves for the inevitability of that conflict? It's a great question. It's an important distinction that you're making, Matt, and I appreciate it. I do think it is primarily a disagreement of value. So, you know, sort of an eco-modernist value, certainly the, the values that we adopt at the Breakthrough Institute are that all humans should be able to live secure, free, prosperous, and fulfilling lives. That is sort of, we think, a non-negotiable for all political, ideological material conflicts and difficulties in the world. That is, I think, quite different, actually, as a primary foundational value compared to conventional environmentalism, which imagines sort of much more constraints on human activity and human consumption than we do. That's not, as you say, primarily a difference of fact or scientific finding, but one of value. I think that we can argue quite a bit about the science and the facts that emerge from that value disagreement, and we do. But I do think that the reason that these debates are so perennial and keep returning to us in a variety of manifestations is because they're at bottom a little bit irresolvable underneath the layer of of value. And at that level, it is just a true disagreement. I think part of the reason it's difficult to sort through is because Folks on either side, uh, depending on who they are and depending on what the context is, are not that honest about where the disagreement arises. And folks really want to have a argument about the facts or to go where the science leads you. You know, eco-modernists and sort of conventional greenies say that, 
when it would be, I think, a lot more productive to, as quickly as possible, sort of reduce the disagreement down to its core essence, which, as you say, is often that particular values divide. That's really interesting. I almost have an easier time seeing it as a, as a disagreement about facts, but I think that's, that's a really interesting way to think about it. And maybe this is a good segue into the issue of nuclear. And I want to talk to you about nuclear because it seems like we're in a really pivotal time where nuclear is having what I would characterize as a political comeback. Whereas five years ago, maybe I might have said that nuclear was on the mat, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. So a couple of questions about nuclear. First, am I correct in deducing that you support it as a key aspect of solving the climate challenge? And if so, why? Absolutely. I and, and the Breakthrough Institute place a significant, although certainly not exclusive, focus on nuclear energy as a key solution to global climate and other en environmental problems. And that's for a number of reasons. One, nuclear energy, the sort of splitting of atoms to release energy that can be captured and converted into electrical energy and hopefully sort of high temperature heat and other useful energy carriers, is a low carbon source of modern energy, full stop. No one really disagrees with that as, you know, again, as a question of fact. And we are concerned about global climate change, about the fact that since the pre-industrial era, the global atmosphere has heated by, last I checked, about 1.1 1 .1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius on average globally and is headed towards two or three degrees this century, which will have all sorts of negative impacts on human and non-human systems. And the more of our energy that we can produce with low carbon technologies, the less climate change we will have to confront as a species and as a planet this century and beyond. I think the conventional assumption was that we would be able to decarbonize, we'd be able to supply low carbon energy, electricity, heat, fuels without nuclear energy, you know, with solar and wind and other renewable energy on its own. And we just don't think that that is, that is likely to be feasible for a number of reasons. Uh, one, solar and wind in particular are intermittent energy technologies. They only produce electricity when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing, which means you either need just a radical overbuilding of the electric power capacity or significant breakthroughs in storage so that you're storing a lot of electricity in the summer when it's really sunny to use in the winter when the solar panels are covered in snow. And those sort of technologies are both mostly not available today. And if they were, would, would have substantial cost implications for the overall energy system. But also, you know, the, these other technologies, which were proponents of solar, wind, geothermal, have substantial environmental impacts of their own. You know, the, just the land area implications of a heavily renewable energy grid are substantial given how energy diffuse and unenergy dense solar and wind are compared to a technology like nuclear, which has by far the lowest land and material footprint of all major energy technologies. So if we want to be using less land and, and using fewer natural resources like minerals, and we want to be reliably powering the future energy economy of the world, then we think that nuclear has to play a key and, and even leading role you know, sort of depending on the future of nuclear technologies and sort of climate policy and, and a whole bunch of questions that are upstream from how we'll actually build these systems. So th that's a little bit of why sort of on the sort of concrete and scientific merits, we have become sort of significant enthusiasts for nuclear energy. I heard you say that nuclear 
was very low carbon intensity. I would agree with that. Very low material intensity. Again, I would agree with that. Non-intermittent and reliable. Again, (laughs) I would agree with that. And yet, politically, until very recently, nuclear has been, as I said, on the mat. So I believe Japan was phasing it out. Germany was phasing it out. California was, was working on phasing it out. So do the political forces behind the anti-nuclear push that I just described, do they disagree with any of the fact claims that I just summarized that, that I believe you stated? And if not, what is their opposition? What's the basis for their opposition? Yeah, there's some factual disagreement. And obviously, I believe what I believe. But, you know, one, uh, there's a bunch of sort of claims made about nuclear from the opposition side. One is that it's not low carbon after all, given the sort of energy intensity of building and maintaining the plants. That turns out not to be true. Another is that actually, yes, we can sort of supply the entire energy economy with renewable energy technologies on their own. And there are a whole bunch of models produced to prove this. And I just, for the most part, for the overwhelming part, don't trust those models at all. And there's a big discourse in academia about the sort of reliability of these so-called 100% renewable energy modeling endeavors. Those are a couple sort of problems that folks have with nuclear that I think are just wrong. Now, nuclear energy does have its challenges ahead of it. So, you know, we built a ton of nuclear energy capacity, predominantly in the sort of rich world in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s in places like the United States and France and Japan. And that sort of build out of nuclear energy really stalled, depending on where you are, somewhere in the 70s and 80s, either because in a situation like France, it was kind of complete. They almost entirely decarbonized their electric grid in France in response to the oil crises of the 1970s, or because of a, of a number of factors that sort of stalled the build out of, of nuclear energy in the West, including a, I think, radically overhyped fear of meltdowns and accidents, you know, sort of following things like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, which we can talk about if you want, as well as a sort of re-emergent ideological opposition to abundant energy technologies and nuclear energy in particular, that was really foundational to the original environmentalist movement. A lot of that manifested or coincided with an increasingly stringent regulatory regime around nuclear energy technologies, um, the creation of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the United States, for example that has sort of slowed as opposed to making more sensible the deployment and regulation of nuclear energy in the United States. So those are those are a number of challenges that nuclear technology faces today. A, a final one is that nuclear reactors that were built in the 60s and 70s and 80s were overwhelmingly large light water reactors, at least 600 megawatts, usually a, a gigawatt or two in a power plant. These are sort of massive industrial mega projects of the kind that not just the United States, but sort of most wealthy economies around the world struggle to build in a sort of sensible way today, whether it's a nuclear plant or, or a bridge or an airport. These things are just massive mega projects that are increasingly expensive. And that, re- that is especially true for nuclear plants, which, you know, as safe as, as they are, do require sort of significant backup systems, redundancies to make sure that meltdowns don't happen and that radiation doesn't leak out of the facility. And that is a legitimate challenge facing the nuclear sector today that a bunch of innovators and startups are working to address through the so-called advanced nuclear 
industry and advanced nuclear reactors that, again, we can talk about more. So those are some of the more and less legitimate problems facing nuclear in the world today. Would you agree that there are broadly the following three sources of opposition to nuclear? So one is the idea that it's expensive and or takes a long time to build and or expensive to insure in terms of accidents. Second, you mentioned Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. My guess would be that if I pressed you on it, you would point out that the death rates from those accidents, as as awful as they were, were tiny compared to even things like air pollution from fossil fuels. And yet those types of accidents do cause localized areas around where they happened, as far as I understand, to be uninhabitable for years, maybe even decades. And so maybe there's a visceral worry about that, that if there's a nuclear power plant in your neighborhood, that there's some chance, however small, that it might destroy your, your neighborhood for, for decades. And then the third one, which I thought I heard you hint at, but I'm, I'm going to see if I'm going to poke it a little bit, is this idea that there are some political currents that are fundamentally against capitalism and so see nuclear as this threatening thing because it's potentially this abundant source of energy that can keep the party going and therefore maybe decouple what people's existential concerns about capitalism are from what might be their existential concerns about the climate. Is that, have I got the first two right? And is the third one accurate or unfair or going too far? I think that's a great way to sort of subdivide the different problems that either people have with nuclear energy or that nuclear technologies face in the world today. I would quibble a little bit with your description of the sort of risk of radiation or nuclear accidents to the general public. You know, sort of the the most dire of of those accidents in history was the partial meltdown at the Chernobyl power plant in, in Ukraine in the 80s which was a nuclear power plant that was very poorly built without a containment dome with an old reactor technology that we don't use anymore that caused sort of acute exposure to radiation from power plant workers and from emergency responders, but that did not in any way sort of render the area around it uninhabitable or cause sort of long-term public health problems outside the acute radiation exposure that was, that was caused initially. So, you know, the worst nuclear accident in history was terrifying and was obviously terrible for the individuals who experienced it and, and were exposed to it. But it's, it's not, I would say, radically different from any other kind of industrial accident, whether it's a dam that bursts and floods someplace where people live, or whether it's a chemical factory explosion or things like that. These are all, at a high level, terrible industrial accidents that cause harm to human and non-human systems. And nuclear is just one of those. So I, I, that's the one reaction I would have to your summary of the risk of sort of radiation and accidents from commercial nuclear power. But I do think that those are a great way of sort of subdividing the different problems facing nuclear, including the sort of, I I think, ideological and reflexive opposition to whatever you call it, abundance, to consumption, to capitalism, to economic growth, that is really, I think, deeply baked into the sort of classical environmentalist mindset and is actually at bottom, I think, the reason for a bunch of opposition to nuclear power, which I think gets sort of cloaked in these sort of pseudoscientific rationales about sort of the economics of power plant construction or about radiation risk or things like that. But I I do think that most of the sort sort of fierce opposition to nuclear, again, at bottom sort of stems from 
that opposition to sort of modern abundance or capitalism or whatever you call it. I guess the one, maybe a fourth concern that I missed in my list would be nuclear weapons. And my sense is that that's not so much of a dominant concern in the public domain today, but as I understand the history, it, it used to be. So quickly, can you comment on the rationality or non-rationality of concerns that if we build nuclear power, it'll be easier to build nuclear weapons? Does that make any sense as a concern or is that misguided? It makes sense as a concern in the sort of general public's reasonably uninformed and unexpert understanding of nuclear technology. It makes sense that, you know, we talk about splitting atoms, whether it's for commercial power plants or whether it's for destructive bombs that are intent for use in, in war or mass murder or something like that. You can see how the sort of general public conflates these technologies. And that's a, that's a serious problem that sort of nuclear innovators, I think, need to be cognizant of. That said, there's really sort of no nation on earth that has ever built commercial nuclear industry in order to build the capabilities to develop a nuclear weapons program. In fact, it's more common that countries just build weapons programs right out in the open, more or less, as North Korea has done, as, as the nation of Iran is continuing to try to do without having any nuclear power plants at all. Um, it's just not actually a dynamic that we see in the world that nuclear energy, that low carbon commercial nuclear energy leads to the pursuit of nuclear weapons program. In fact, precisely the opposite. If you are building a nuclear commercial nuclear energy industry, then you are necessarily engaged with the nuclear non-proliferation system administered by the international community. You are almost certainly in sort of global trade agreements for nuclear fuel and for engineering resources from the United States or France or other sort of experienced nuclear energy industries. And you have a sort of material geopolitical interest in not developing nuclear weapons or certainly not using them. And so I, I think that the sort of the continued expansion of commercial nuclear energy to many more countries in the coming decades will actually prove to be a limit on the expansion of nuclear weapons capabilities. That's very interesting. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I, I agree with you that it's a, a common or easily constructed lay concern about nuclear. So one question now about the recent political developments around nuclear. It seems like, as I mentioned earlier, nuclear was not doing well politically in rich countries. And recent, very recently, that seems to have changed significantly. The two specific events that I can think of that might have contributed to that, one obvious one is the war in Ukraine and the related increase in concern that for Europe in particular, relying on Russian gas isn't smart. And then the second one is the recent recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom in California, where Mike Schellenberger, who I believe was one of the co-founders of the Breakthrough Institute that, that you work at, ran as an independent. And one of the things that he pushed Governor Gavin Newsom on was his opposition to nuclear and Schellenberger's belief that, that it was not rational or that was misguided for, for many of the reasons that you've outlined. Is that it? Or am I missing some broader undercurrent that you think has influenced this turn of the tide? Yeah, I think the broader undercurrent is the emergence over the last 10, 15 years of a sort of broad pro-nuclear movement within civil society. And that includes 
places like the Breakthrough Institute. It, it includes, you know, sort of like think tanks like Third Way and Clear Paths in Washington, D.C., research organizations on the political left, on the political right. It includes sort of actual sort of pro-nuclear nonprofit advocacy community, like you see with Generation Atomic. It includes sort of civil society advocates for reform of nuclear energy policy, like the Nuclear Innovation Alliance. And it has, you see sort of increasingly outspoken pro-nuclear environmentalists like Stuart Brand at the Long Now Foundation. You even have like celebrities like Robert Downey Jr. who are voicing vocal support for nuclear energy. And I think that last decade of sort of a change in tenor and, and, a, and a change in sort of vocal support for nuclear technologies is a real break from what came before, which was a situation where to the extent that you saw support for nuclear energy technologies, it was from the government or the military or is from the utility industry. And there really wasn't a civil society, let alone sort of environmentalist um, or environmentally minded advocacy community in support of, again, this low carbon technology. Um, and that really changed over the last 10 or 15 years. I think Breakthrough was a major player in, in that, uh, although not the only one. Within that decade, you also saw sort of heightening concern about climate change as emissions began to rise. And as I think folks started to really understand that this sort of conventional environmentalist story about how we're going to decarbonize the whole world as quickly as possible, while also shutting down one of our largest sources of low carbon energy, that just doesn't make sense at a very basic level. And I'm glad you brought up the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think that when you get to a situation like we've had in, in the last six months with, you know, a sort of unprecedented in the sort of the last half century land war in Western Europe and an effect on global energy and food supply chains that compounds the problems that we experience coming out of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, you actually have a sort of broadly sensed, a broad sense of scarcity as food and energy prices rise. And it's one thing as sort of Japan and, and Germany and many parts of the United States are trying to do to shut down your nuclear plants when energy prices are low and when it seems like there's slack in, in the supply to handle it. It's another thing when you're in a situation like my state of California was this summer where we're threatened for the nth summer in a row with rolling blackouts because climate change is causing our summers to get hotter, using more Air conditioning in sort of high summer. We use more electricity this summer on one day than we ever have before. And we almost had ro uh, rolling blackouts as we have for the last several summers. I think when, you know, for the first time in, in a while, sort of wealthy consumers in rich developed economies feel that sense of scarcity, whether it's high electricity prices or the possibility of blackouts or food shortages or expensive food or really expensive gasoline, then I think that changes a lot of minds really quickly about the need for a technology like nuclear that you might have assumed we could do without even a few years ago, which is why I'm glad you brought up Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom was not the driving force behind the closure of Diablo Canyon, California's last nuclear power plant. He was instrumental when he was uh, lieutenant governor and chair of the state water board in the decision to close that plant. And now is that sort of most vocal supporter in California government. He His office wrote a proposal for the California state legislature to consider to extend the operating lifespan of Diablo Canyon by 10 years. The legislature decided to keep it open for another five. But as we're talking, the legislature recently passed a proposal to extend a lifespan of Diablo Canyon. And Governor Newsom was, was out recently talking about how that having that power plant online will help avert rolling blackouts. So I, I think that 
you do have this combination of a unprecedented sort of civil society support for this really critical low carbon technology, along with a fairly unique sense of its need stemming from things like the sort of scarcity and limits on sort of supply chains experience from COVID-19, the sort of downstream effects globally of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think more sort of prosaic things, just like the need to use air conditioning when it's hot outside and the silliness of turning off low carbon technologies when we have what everyone I think understands is a heightening need for uh, electricity generation, not a disappearing one. Thanks. That was a really good explainer of the recent political currents. The last question I want to ask you about nuclear concerns the topic of environmental justice. And basically, I want to ask you about the following juxtaposition or contradiction or contrast between two different perspectives. So the first comes was best articulated, as far as I've seen, by a, a recent a nuclear activist whose name is, is escaping me, who testified in Canada, which is where I'm from originally, about, about the justice case for nuclear. And he said, if you're talking about nuclear in Canada, you're talking about almost entirely domestic, well-paying union jobs, in contrast to, say, solar panels, which are made, many of them are made in Xinjiang, China, possibly by slave labor. And so that makes the justice case for nuclear very good. The flip side might be saying, well, if we want to decarbonize today's developing countries, especially today's really poor or least developed countries quickly, might it be easier to use something that you might characterize as low tech and potentially distributed like solar than something that's high tech and requires a lot of capital and capacity like nuclear? So what do you, what do you think about that in general? Yeah, I think that's a, a great sort of couple of observations. You know, the, the first that I would reiterate is the extent to which, you know, I, I would say, broadly speaking, the sort of environmental justice community does not think well of nuclear technology. And I think that's mostly because they've imported a really sort of ideological opposition to nuclear from classical environmentalism instead of considering the extent to which nuclear is a very sort of low material intensity, almost zero pollution, low carbon technology that can actually have sort of very healthy economic benefits for the communities that it's in and around. You know, don't want to be sort of too rose-tinted about that, but I, I do think that there is a very strong environmental justice case for nuclear technologies that my colleagues Adam Stein and Siever Wang have written about on our website and elsewhere. That said, I don't think that the nuclear technologies of today are sort of immediately scalable in all contexts and in all sort of socioeconomic contexts. For instance, I don't think anyone, myself included, expects the sort of poorest countries in the world today that are overwhelmingly reliant on wood and dung and to a, lo a lesser extent sort of oil and natural gas to be building large one gigawatt light water nuclear power plants anytime soon, partly because their electricity demand is just not growing fast enough to need to build a one gigawatt light water reactor, and partly because the supply chains and civil engineering and regulatory institutions are just not in place in so many poor countries around the world today to build a sort of a pressurized water reactor or a boiling water reactor or any of the conventional nuclear technologies that we take for granted in places like the United States and France and the UK and Sweden and Japan. That said, there are a number of advanced, smaller, even micro nuclear reactor technologies that startups in, especially in North America, are working on today that might make nuclear a sort of more modular, even I sort of hesitate to say low tech option 
for poorer, less developed nations and would be, from a regulatory and engineering perspective, easier to, con- to deploy and construct than conventional nuclear power plants would be. Now, that is a if, that is speculative, but that is the hope of a bunch of these advanced nuclear startups to be able to, to play in smaller communities, in poorer countries, in more rural areas with sort of fewer folks connected to the grid. And I think that's a, a really exciting promise of these advanced technologies, especially the much smaller reactors that you could deploy either you know, on their own or in a sort of package the way that we deploy solar and wind technologies now. So obviously you can put a set of solar panels on your rooftop or you can build tens of thousands of solar panels together in a solar farm in the desert. If we get it right, if we get the licensing and commercialization right, I think that's how we'll be thinking about nuclear technologies in the next several decades, where you could deploy one one megawatt micro reactor for a sort of very limited use case, or you can package a bunch of them on top of each other and, and build a, a power plant that has a bunch of reactors in it for context of, of higher electricity consumption and everything in between. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So just to wrap up our, our the nuclear part of our conversation, would it be fair to say that in a broad sense, you're a both and type of renewable energy advocate, meaning that you support nuclear and other types of, of clean energy? Or, or do, you, do you really see nuclear as, as being the solution to the exclusion of some of these other types? I'm an energy abundance guy. I think that the, our energy future is unwritten and what we will want in our energy systems as well as in our food and our urban systems is abundance and sort of slack in the system so that when one part of the system fails for whatever reason, the whole system doesn't come crumbling down with it. So that when one power plant goes down, you have other power plants, you have other infrastructure that can keep our sort of modern industrial energy economy operating. So in that sense, yes, I am a a yes and person. I think that the future of decarbonization and low carbon energy systems is going to be one of nuclear and, and wind and solar and geothermal and hydrogen and electric storage and carbon removal and carbon capture at power and other industrial power plants. And I, I think that using a bunch of these technologies makes the whole system more, more resilient, not less, and relying on a number of technological pathways and being sort of nimble and resilient to a number of technological futures is really the only way to plan for a secure and resilient future. So the last topic I want to visit before we wrap up relates to academia and maybe more broadly in this context, the scientific community. So this podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization, which is a center that I would say is definitely actively promotes the idea of different points of view on issues coming together. And I think it would be fair to say that we exist at least at some level because there are people who see those kinds of spaces as lacking in academia and maybe in research more broadly. And so I guess from your perspective, do you see that as an issue in climate research? And if so, to what extent? Yeah, I do think that academia, especially sort of environmental academia, is inflected by a, a kind of partisanship and an ideology that, again, I think is largely downstream from the sort of classic conventional environmentalist metaphysics that emerged in the sort of post-war negative reaction to innovation and abundance that you saw in figures like Rachel Carson and E.F. Schumacher and Amory Levins and the, the founding of organizations like the Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth and Natural Resources Defense Council later on. I think that 
the sort of academia writ large is at times in, in partnership and uh, at times sort of funded by, but mostly sort of ideologically inflected with the sort of classic environmentalist way of thinking about the world. I think that that is less true when you get out of sort of environmental studies programs and you start to, you sort of venture into agricultural economics or resource economics or engineering or other sort of scientific disciplines, which are obviously implicated in our our major environmental concerns. But I I do think that whether it's uh, sort of geography or environmental studies, that there tends to be very limited appetite for debate of these sort of classical environmental environmentalist foundations and oftentimes sort of broad hostility to other ways of thinking about the sort of human nature technology interface that I think is is unfortunate. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm fully answering the question that you have, but that is a, a major sort of concern that I have for the pursuit of knowledge that our academy is is supposed to be designed for. Yeah, no, that, that does answer my question. Let me just ask you one follow-up. And that is, if I look at the fields of academia where people often point to this type of problem, it seems like the common features are political monoculture among active resource researchers, excuse me, political tribalism that can be intense, pressures to virtue signal, and moral panics about issues that you know we would all agree are serious issues. So climate change certainly being one of them. Racism is another one that's, that's often the news in this context. But I want to ask you, is there maybe an additional element in climate that might be distinct from these others? And that is that there has been a history, I would say, of special interest-backed misinformation muddying the waters and occasionally you know, personally attacking members of the climate science community. And so to what extent, if at all, do you think that that plays a role in climate scientists sometimes wanting to circle the wagons around certain tribal mindsets? And if you do, do you think that that is understandable? Do you think it's justifiable? What should we be doing instead insofar as this tribalism is an issue? It's a really great question, Matt. I think that sort of climate scientists writ large absolutely have a view that you say special interests. I think overwhelmingly it's presumed to be the sort of global fossil fuel industry or, or the oil and yep. gas industry or, or specific fair. companies like, like ExxonMobil are sort of deliberately attacking the credibility of, uh, of climate science. And therefore, we're in a sort of Manichaean knowledge struggle for whose for who's sort of influence and power actually takes root in the world and affects policy change and, and affects social license and, and, and affects our sort of broad understanding of the problem. I don't want to say that those concerns on the part of the climate science community are wholly illegitimate. I do think that they are sort of radically overinflated by the climate science community, which I, I think is sort of populated by sort of overwhelmingly sort of impressive and respectable figures who are mostly scientists who are trying to understand the problems that human societies create in the world and, and are thinking in, in many contexts about how to discuss those problems and how to solve them. But are also, I think, populated largely by sort of academics who self-select into climate science, you know, precisely because they are, as the sort of global human population goes, more concerned about it than I think most people are. And, you know, I think you can sort of validate that finding by just looking at public opinion surveys that show that vanishingly few people, you sort of, you can count on one hand, the sort of percentage of people 
who identify climate change as a major concern of theirs. And so there's a disconnect between, and it's sort of a structural and almost banal one, but there's a disconnect between the climate scientists who have self-selected into a career in understanding the problem and the sort of median person, sort of median consumer um, or the median voter. And I think, to sort of circle back, that climate scientists are frustrated with that disconnect and frustrated that more people don't think as much about climate change or think as catastrophically about it as as the science they say is telling them to do so. And they look for explanations of that disconnect. And very often, I think that they identify the source of that disconnect being disinformation from special interests, just disinformation and climate denial and predatory delay from interested parties who are either paying policymakers not to pursue climate policy or are funding sort of PR and advertising campaigns to sway the public away from concern about climate change or away from support for climate policy. I think that is radically sort of overstated and exaggerated as a uh, as a dynamic driving sort of public concern for climate change in one way or the other, which I think is mostly sort of actually downstream of the sort of cost and scalability of energy transportation, agricultural and industrial technologies. I think Actually, if you ask people if they support decarbonization and support addressing climate change, they don't feel that intensely about it, but they're overwhelmingly supportive of that. We see with first with the switch from coal to increasingly cheap natural gas in the United States and now increasingly cheap solar and wind and battery technologies that people and businesses actually will adopt these technologies if they're cheap and scalable. And that will drive emissions reductions much more than any sort of putative intensity of feeling about climate change that would arise from sort of taking the science more seriously or quote unquote listening to the climate scientists. So I, I think that is the, is the sort of source of, of frustration on the part of the climate science community writ large. And I, I don't want to sort of implicate any individual science in, uh, in my uh, attempt to narrate this. And I think that's I think there's a better explanation for the, the sort of general public's lack of take up of that message. Yeah, that's really interesting. Two last questions before we wrap up. The first is, I take your point that the narrative about special interests and fossil fuel interests in particular sometimes might be overplayed. On the other hand, to steelman the opposing view, some might point to the statistics that I believe it's the case in the late 1980s, the fraction of Democrats, Republicans, and independents who said they were worried about climate change was almost exactly the same. And then the gap widened after that largely driven by Republican concern falling. And then recently, it's ever so started, it slightly started to, to increase again. And so a lot of people, at least as I've seen it, point to that as evidence of the influence of the, me- of the you know, media narrative that they saw as driven by these, these special interests. Do you think there's some truth to that? Or, and if not, what explains the, the statistics I just described? I think there's some truth to that. But I think overwhelmingly, the reason you see sort of a a big partisan gap that grew sort of post-1990 between Democrats and Republicans on the subject of climate change is because, you know, from the emergence of the idea of climate change on the sort of policy space, driven by, you know, at the time, Vice President Al Gore and other figures, the solution to climate change was posed as a global treaty dictating how quickly every country on earth needed to reduce their emissions and to sort of reduce industrial activity and sort of to change the way that our modern industrial economies are set up in accordance with what sort of diplomats at the United Nations and climate scientists were telling us we had to do. 
This is a, you couldn't design a, a policy agenda that would have less uptake among ideological conservatives and political parties who are, who are more skeptical of government and of internationalist and globalist institutions than that. So I think that is actually much more explanatory of the reasons for Republican opposition to climate policy than anything about sort of merchants of doubt or sort of fossil fuel funding of Republican politicians. That is obviously true because you see significant Republican support that whole time for investments in low carbon energy technologies, for solar and wind. Uh, you know, Republicans have always been big fans of nuclear. You know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which passed Congress this summer, contained a bunch of provisions that Republicans have long supported, like funding for clean energy tax credits, for demonstration funding for advanced technologies like hydrogen or carbon removal. I mentioned Inflation Reduction Act because I, I want to point towards the ways in which even sort of my optimism about bipartisan support for climate policy has its own limits. You know, not a single Republican supported the Inflation Reduction Act, I think mostly for sort of partisan political reasons. But for this whole time, you know, Republicans have been authoring and supporting technology policy, R&D policy, deployment policy for low carbon energy technologies even as they have been cast by the sort of climate science and sort of progressive environmentalist media as the primary obstacles to climate policy in the world. They might have not been super supportive of things like a cap and trade bill or the Kyoto Protocol or the, or the, or the Copenhagen Climate Treaty, but of course they weren't going to be. They're, they're sort of political and ideological conservatives who are, who are skeptical of that form of policy making in the first place. And by the way, I think in a bunch of ways, those inclinations are correct. I think that this is a, I think that climate change is, a, is primarily a technological problem, not one that's going to be solved through international diplomacy or negotiation, or even primarily through making dirty energy more expensive. I think it's going to be solved by making clean energy less expensive and more scalable. And on that, there's actually significant bipartisan agreement. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. In, in fact, it's something that a former student of mine, Renee Marshall, and I have written about in a few different forums, the fact that there, there does seem to be this bipartisan climate playbook that's flown under the radar, at least for the last few years. We just had an op-ed come out called the Bipartisan Playbook is Emerging, <laughs> or Bipartisan Climate Playbook is Emerging. So the last question is back to the topic of academia. And that is, it sounds like you do think there is an issue or a challenge of what you might call a lack of viewpoint diversity in climate academia. And so my last question is, what if anything could academic institutions do to address it? You know, it's a great point. I'll refrain from speaking too much about the sort of pipeline problems of basically sort of funneling folks who are more sort of progressively inclined into and through the sort of academic institutions of the United States and the rich world. I think that's an important dynamic to keep an eye on, but especially sort of vis-a-vis -vis sort of climate and environmental politics, policy and scholarship. I'll sidestep that a little bit because I, I don't know if I have anything interesting to add. What I would say is that I just, you know, anecdotally, and I, I think it speaks to a broader way forward and, and way of thinking about it. I studied at the College of Natural Resources at UC Berkeley. I was an environmental economics major, which, which meant I took a bunch of sort of classical environmental studies, environmental justice, environmental science class taught by, you know, I, I would say folks who hew closer to the sort of conventional environmentalist metaphysical way of thinking about the world. And I took classes at the Energy and Resources Group. I took classes in the Department of Economics, which are staffed more by engineers and by economists, obviously. And so for me, I think that exposed me to not just 
a different discipline, but different way of thinking about the world and different form of problem solving and a, and a different way of decomposing social and technological and economic problems into their constituent parts. And so I, I guess my answer to your question is that we need more interdisciplinary scholarship. We need more interdisciplinary course making. We need more interdisciplinary exposure to undergrads, especially who are coming up through the academic discipline, who by selecting a major and sort of especially by taking a bunch of courses within one school or one department might end up in a bit of an ideological or disciplinary echo chamber, which I was fortunate enough to break out of at UC Berkeley, but that I can totally imagine someone at Berkeley or, or at any other any number of other institutions getting trapped in. So I, I think there's quite a bit more we could say about the lack of viewpoint diversity and the ways in which academia in the United States is an increasingly sort of left-indexed political in endeavor in, in a bunch of ways. But I'll stop short of uh, rambling on too much about that stuff and just say that sort of more disciplinary diversity and, and more sort of viewpoint diversity within that should be, I think, a really central pursuit of our institutions of higher learning. Well, that's a great note to end on. And, and, uh, and I think it's an optimistic one because I suspect maybe sometimes for different reasons, a lot of leaders of higher education institutions would agree with that recommendation. So I'll just say uh, thanks again, Alex Trembath, for coming on the Free Mind podcast, and we'll see you soon. Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. The Free Mind podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind at colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Benson. You can also find us on social media. Our Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube accounts are all at Benson Center. Our Instagram is at The Benson Center. And the Facebook is at Bruce D. Benson Center.